All right, I have to remember what books. Um, all right, so this is Spurgeon's lectures to my students. This is really uh, excellent. He's very witty, very insightful. He's also very long. This is a really good, good book. Who would like this book? First hand up. There we go. That's how I'm doing it. Quick hand. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry about that, brother. All right. Um, second is my favorite missionary biography to the Golden Shore, Adoniram Judson. I read this to my kids. It's really amazing. Um, do you have a question? <laughs> All right, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I love it. It's, it's, it's written like a novel, um, but it's also very historically accurate. And the life that Judson lived, the life of suffering... Uh, you know, it'll, it'll inspire you. So, and then this is Brothers Were Not Professionals, and this is by John Piper, and he just goes through... It, the thing I love about this book is it's, uh, the chapters are very short, so you can go through it with another man uh, if you want to do a mentoring or you guys are side-by-side side and just go through the topics. It just covers a lot of pastoral ministry topics. So who, who would like that? All right, brother. Thank you. There you go. All right. Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible time we've had. We've been so well treated here as guests in this church. People have volunteered their time. Eric and his, and his staff, his team, Clayton with the music, uh, AV, everything that's happened here has been such a blessing. And now be with us as we uh, consider this topic of, of battling discouragement in ministry. Help me to uh, to speak in a way that would be helpful to my brothers, uh, brother pastors here, and to all that are here listening, brothers and sisters alike, that we all of us have to battle this, uh, quite this issue of, of discouragement in ministry. So please be with me as I speak, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, we're looking at 255 according to the, all right, all right, well, I'll try to stay within that. Okay. All right. So Jesus made an incredible statement in Matthew 16, 18. He said, uh, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it or a little more precisely uh, prove stronger than it. Um, gates of Hades, an interesting expression. Sometimes you get in hymns, you know, the gates of hell, this kind of thing, or, you know, hell could not keep Christ from rising from the dead. A lot of times hell is personified, sometimes like Satan, etc. But I think it's reasonable to see that Jesus is making a very strong and, and, and defiant statement, saying, I'm going to build my church and my enemies can't stop me. Death can't stop me. Satan can't stop me. Sin can't stop me. Nothing can stop me from building my church. And that's an awesome statement. Now, when Satan hears that, how does he respond? Does he throw up his hands and give up? That's not his nature. Satan has a kind of a dark resilience to him that's bef- that befuddles me. How he, remember how he tempted Jesus and Jesus resisted him successfully three times. And Satan left him, we're told, until an opportune time. He's coming back. He has a kind of a dark, persistent resilience so in the spirit of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, I kind of put my, my, myself in his place. 
if I were Satan, what would I do to try to stop the advance of the gospel? How could I do it? Satan is going to fight every step of the way, but look at what's against him. Look what he's facing. First of all, let's talk about the church's offensive weaponry. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we're ready to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So in other words, the Word of God is powerful to demolish satanic strongholds, satanic lies. Also, it says in 2 Corinthians 6-7, it speaks of weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. That's, that's powerful. Or again, Ephesians 6-17, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now you think back in those days, hand-to-hand combat, the sword was the quintessential weapon. It's a metaphor for military, you know, Live by the sword, die by the sword, this kind of thing. The sword represents military conquest. The sword. The sword had to be made of excellent metallurgy because if a sword hit sword and one of those swords shattered and the other one didn't, the one with the shattered sword is is going to lose. And Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. Think about that. God's Word cannot be broken. It survives every clash with satanic lies. So, that's what he's facing in terms of our offensive weaponry. What about our defensive protection? It says in Ephesians 6, 16, we should take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Beyond that, you have the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. These things cannot be penetrated. They're perfectly made. They can't be pierced. The shield of faith extinguishes every flaming arrow of the evil one. He can't penetrate it. So, if God's servants put on the full armor of God, and take up the weapons of righteousness and advance in the power of the Holy Spirit, Satan will lose. And he's been losing for 20 centuries. So what is the devil to do? Well, what he will do is he will deceive us. He will trick us into not even trying. He will level us from within through despair, so that we do not put on the spiritual armor and we do not stand up in the power of the Spirit and advance in the name of the Lord and proclaim the gospel boldly. Because if we do all that, he'll lose. And so he deceives us. He will try to overwhelm us with discouragement so that we don't even try. Now, there is a long history of God's faithful, choicest servants being overwhelmed 
with discouragement, assaulted with discouragement. All you have to do is, if you know what to look for, just search it out and you'll find it. For example, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about Moses. Remember how God sent Moses back uh, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Remember that? And so he had the burning bush encounter. And I don't know if you get this, but I sense he didn't want to go. Do you get that sense? Why don't, you know, I like when he says in the Hebrew euphemism, Lord, send the one you choose. That's after they've had a lot of discussion. Send the one you choose. It's like, <laughs> that's translated in the NIV, send someone else, <laughs> which is what it meant, but it's not literalistic translation. It was, please send someone. He didn't want to go. But remember how he's, he, he was equipped with some miracles he could do. The, the staff turned into a snake and his hand turned leprous and then was healed again. And so he gets propped up and, and sent. And as he goes there, things go from bad to much worse for the Jews. You remember? They had to make bricks without straw. And uh, Pharaoh commanded that, and, and the, the, the Jewish elders were angry at him. The Jewish people were angry at him. Everything went badly as he started this great mission of bringing the Jews out of out of Egypt. And so Exodus 5.23, this is the example of Moses' um, discouragement. This is his prayer to, prayer to God. Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Now just think about what's going on in that statement. I mean, you haven't even done even a little rescuing. What about Elijah. After that whole encounter with the prophets of Baal, remember that? And the fire fell from heaven. And then he prays multiple times for the rain to come. And now the rain comes at last. And uh, remember, he hitches up his uh, tunic and, and runs ahead of Ahab's chariot and gets there and finds out that the wicked queen, Jezebel, had taken a vow in the name of her gods says, may the gods deal with me if I don't make your life like one of theirs, the prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. This is not a woman who was given to idle threats. She basically ran the country. And Elijah heard it and he fled. And he, he ran into the desert, afraid of Jezebel. And he's out there in the desert and he's just ready to lie down and die. Really, literally. And God sends an angel to give him a biscuit and a jar of water. Remember that? Here, Elijah, just eat, eat this, drink this. Go back to sleep. <laughs> and then he wakes him and gives him another biscuit and another jar of water. And he's just, he's depressed. And he goes to that cave and God has that encounter with him, the still small voice, all of that. But there's little doubt in my mind that he'd reached the end of his physical, mental, emotional energy. Remember that's where he says, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Remember that's where God says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's not, it, everything's not the way you think. What about David? How many times do you see David facing depression or discouragement with the number of enemies that are trying to conspire against him? How many psalms mention David's conspiring enemies? People whispering in the halls, conspiring against him, wanting to assassinate him. 
and, and he didn't have to wonder about whispering. That's after he became king. Before that, he had his father-in-law who was literally openly trying to track him down and kill him. Very, very hard life. What about Jonah, the most successful revival preacher of the Old Testament, thoroughly depressed at his success? He didn't want the Ninevites saved. He wanted them slaughtered. Remember that? And he's sitting on the hill overlooking Nineveh waiting for the fire to fall from heaven. But it doesn't come. And then God sends that plant that grew up over him and he was, says Jonah was very happy about the plant. <laughs> but then God sent a worm to chew up the plant and he was very, very upset. And God confronted him and said, Are, do you have a right? Do you have a right to be angry? He said, I do. I'm angry enough to die. Now, whatever we think about Jonah, I think we must see him as an example of discouragement in ministry. It's nothing went the way he wanted it to go. Now, we, we can stand from the outside and say he should not have felt that way toward the Ninevites. But at any rate, he's an example. And then how could we, we avoid talking about Job? Job was overtly, he was in overt despair. I mean, he lost all his kids, lost everything, lost the esteem of his neighbors. People were mocking him. His friends were sitting around him and saying very harsh things to him. One of them reached the point where he said, is not your wickedness endless? I mean, imagine saying that to Job. But Job said vertically some hard things to God. He said, I look for you, but I don't find you. I don't know where you are. I mean, he said some things that he later regretted, but that was, I mean, he's, he's depressed. What about the Apostle Paul? Well, Paul was a man filled with hope. He was an amazing man. I think probably the second most amazing man in history behind Jesus. But this is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5 through 9. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our comfort. He said this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we endured in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Would you not think that would be an example of the language of despair or of discouragement? I mean, we were at the point where we were pretty sure we were going to die. But then he says this, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So in other words, God had to bring Paul through some pretty severe trials to strip him of self-reliance. All of us struggle with self-reliance, but that's what he said. Well, that's in the Bible. What about in church history? There are many, many examples of godly heroes of church history that reach pretty low points in their ministry. This is one thing I didn't know about Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a great hero of the faith. Tremendous courage. Imagine standing before medieval Roman Catholicism, 
before the Emperor Charles V who wanted you dead, the Pope wants you dead, all of those cardinals want you dead, the entire Roman machinery wants you dead, and usually back then if the Roman machinery wanted you dead, you were dead. And he had the exact same doctrine that, uh, that John Huss had had a hundred years before that, and they burned him at the stake. And he had come under a white flag of truce, John Huss had, and they betrayed him. They lied and they killed him. And so now here's Luther at the Diet of Worms under the same promise of safe conduct. And for all he knew, the same thing was going to happen to him that happened to John Huss a hundred years before that. But he stood firm, he was courageous, he was bold, he was unafraid, all of that. However, later on in the Reformation, as things started unfolding and all that, and the threat to his life abated, and he did a lot of writing and he did a lot of preaching. He was a professor at the university there at Wittenberg. He was not the pastor of that church in Wittenberg. Johann uh, Bugenhagen was, um, but... Uh, Luther was the most acclaimed preacher in Europe. He was well known as a preacher, and everybody wanted to hear Luther preach. Well, in the midst of all of his astonishing activity in leading the Reformation, all the books he was writing and all of that, in 1528 he preached over 200 times in one year. Think about that. That's like two out of every three days or two out of every four days, something like that. Like every other day, more than every other day he preached. From 1529, we have 121 sermons, even though he had severe headaches and spells of dizziness. On 40 days that year, he preached twice that day. So he had double sermons on 40 of those days that year. He was a remarkable and tireless preacher of the Word of God. However, at the beginning of the year 1530, he quit preaching entirely. Stopped preaching altogether. Just went back to his work as a professor. For over a year and a half, he stayed out of the Wittenberg pulpit. His friends were pleading with him to go back to preaching, but he refused. What happened? Well, he became very discouraged at the lack of evident progress of the Reformation among the German citizenry citizenry there. Not trying to insult anybody, but they were drunken Germans in medieval Roman Catholicism, and now they were just drunken Germans in the Reformation. They hadn't changed at all. And he had hoped for better. He was bitterly disappointed at the progress of the gospel there in Germany. In 1529, he had warned the congregation several times that he would stop preaching unless there was more fruit of the gospel among them. He told them that they were selfish and miserly. Quote, I am sorry that I ever freed you from the tyrants and the papists. You ungrateful beasts. You're not worthy of the gospel. If you don't improve, I'm going to stop casting my pearls before you swine. He said that to them. I would not recommend that when you're feeling discouraged in ministry. But that was Luther. That's who he was. Now, Philip Melanchthon, his right-hand man, thought he was done. He had written letters. He said, no, he's never going to go back to the pulpit. He's done. But eventually he came back. Why? What's going on there? He was discouraged. He was discouraged. And again, go back to my original question. You know, if you were going to stop Martin Luther and you couldn't, you've not been able to kill him, what can you do? The flaming arrow of depression, of discouragement. And he stops preaching. Jonathan Edwards, during the controversy about the Lord's Supper, that led to his dismissal from being pastor at Northampton, Edwards came to have serious doubts about his own pastoral gifts. 
He was well aware that he had a brittle, unsociable personality that tended to alienate people. Foreseeing ever-increasing strife in his ministry, he said with great emotion to a friend, it seems like I am born to be a man of strife. Basically, everywhere I go, there's conflicts. To his wife, Sarah, he lamented that the prospect ahead of his failed pastoral ministry seemed, quote, like a bottomless ocean, end quote. What's going on? He's depressed. Jonathan Edwards, leader of the First Great Awakening, one of the greatest revivals in church history. William Carey, father of modern missions, did immense work translating the Bible and all of that. But it literally went up in smoke in 1832. All of his, his dictionaries, his translation work, all of it burned. No backup discs, all right? All of it gone. Now, he had a more resilient personality than a lot of the people that I'm dealing with. He was a very optimistic person. Uh, he had a, a literally clinically insane wife that was kept in restraint in the room next to him while he did his work. She was screaming much of the time he was translating and doing other things. Constantly having to battle that depression and that discouragement. But he did it very buoyantly, more so than most of the other individuals that I'm talking about here. Then there's Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shore. And you can read about this in that, in that account. But he had tremendous suffering and a very slow start to his ministry in terms of converts and outward success. He also had uh, buried one child and then had a sickly uh, second child, a daughter, I believe, who was, her, her life was like a flickering candle in, in, in the wind. She, just really at any moment, he expected her to die. Meanwhile, the British government called, he was not a British citizen, he's an American citizen, but was, he was called because of his, his lingu, linguistic skills to be a translator as a war had recently ended between England and Burma. And so he was called away and he was willing to go, so he was away from his wife, Nancy, and their little frail daughter. While he was away, he got a letter with a black seal, just knew it was bad news, and he opened up trembling to read about the death of his daughter, only it wasn't his daughter who died, it was his wife. I'm very sorry to tell you about the demise of your beloved wife. And he couldn't believe the words on the page. She was in good health when he left. But a fever had come on her suddenly and she died. He went home immediately and then shortly thereafter the child died as well. And things were so depressing for him, the fruit so limited to the sacrifices he had made, that he went out into the jungle near his home and he dug a grave there and he stared into it for hours. He was not overtly suicidal, but it was symbolic and he was just looking into it and milking those depressing feelings. And he said these words, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. I don't think he's here. I do believe him, but I don't know who he is. Now, at the end of his life, he had one of the greatest, like, dying statements ever. He said, I am not weary of this world, and I am not weary of my work, but when the Lord calls me, I shall be like a schoolboy in the final day of school. You guys remember what that felt like? School's out for summer, and you go running, and you're just, whatever, he said. And that's his version of, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. I am glad to keep working, if that's what the Lord has, but I'd rather go and be with the Lord. So God healed him. Then there's Charles Spurgeon. It's in, that, in, in lectures to my students. 
And he wrote this. He had his own battles with depression and discouragement. He often was afflicted with it, so much so that he could hardly function. He once delivered a lecture entitled The Minister's Fainting Fits. It's in lectures to my students. This is what he wrote. As it is recorded that David in the heat of battle waxed faint so that it might be written of all the servants of the Lord, fits of depression comes over the most of us. The strong are not always vigorous. The wise are not always ready. The brave are not always courageous. And the joyous are not always happy, end quote. Now, the most mysterious and powerful of all of these I want to bring you to in Isaiah chapter 49. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. Now, this is the fruit of the meditations that I did. I took about five years to write that commentary on Isaiah that was given out earlier today. Um, so I learned a lot about the book of Isaiah. It was also one of the uh, one of the longest books. It is the longest book that I've ever memorized. It was a hard book to memorize. Um, and I walked through it, but I learned a lot. In the suffering servant passages, the messianic prophecies in Isaiah, uh, it's really fascinating how they are written, how they are written. They frequently are written almost as inter-Trinitarian conversations, the father speaking to the son or the son speaking for himself, not Isaiah having anything to say. He's just the mouthpiece of the triune God speaking to the Jewish nation. That's how these things are written. And so if you look at Isaiah 49.6, you'll see that, that inter-Trinitarian speaking. Listen to this. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, who is the light for the Gentiles? Is it not Jesus? Is that not what Simeon said when he took the little baby Jesus and said, you're a light for the Gentiles? Isn't that what Zechariah said? about John the Baptist, uh, that he would be a a forerunner for a light for the Gentiles? Isn't this the prophecy that uh, Paul and and Barnabas quoted in, in Acts 13? The light for the Gentiles is Jesus. The light for the Gentiles who brings the salvation of the Lord to the ends of the earth is Jesus. But who's speaking this? This is addressed to the light to the Gentiles. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Who's the I? Who's the my? It's Almighty God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is saying this to his servant to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, as often in these suffering servant prophecies, we're listening to the voices within the Trinity. And in that voice, uh, verse, God the Father speaks to God the Son. But in the earlier verses, God the Son himself is speaking. So look at verses 1 through 3. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, this is Jesus, the Messiah, speaking of what God has sent him to do. 
And again, this should be familiar to us because this is the same way that Jesus handled Scripture in, in Nazareth when he unrolled the Isaiah scroll. And he read in Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's the same vocalization here. It's Jesus, the suffering servant, telling what God has sent him to do. Now, the word Israel should not throw us off because it's difficult, but he's not talking about the nation Israel because in verse 6 he says, I will send you to save those of Israel I have kept. So Israel is used differently in that sense. So I think Jesus is the perfect son of God who was what Israel was meant to be in terms of obedience uh, to God. That's the way I interpret it. But keep going. Here's the shocker. Look at verse 4. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Who is saying that? The suffering servant. The same one that just was speaking before in verses 1 through 3. It's like, wait, are you saying Jesus is saying, I have labored to no purpose, I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing? I'm just reading Isaiah 49.4. Who is it that says this? Well, the best explanation I get out of this is the apparent failure of the messianic mission. The apparent failure of the messianic mission. He was almost universally rejected by the Jewish nation. Certainly, they came in large numbers to be healed and to be fed. But remember in John 6 when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood? How popular was that? Most of the people turned back and no longer followed him. The people that really wanted what he came to give, namely the word of God, didn't want it. And by the time it came for them to choose between him and Barabbas, they chose Barabbas and said, crucify him concerning Jesus. At the end of the only perfect ministry of word and example there has ever been, Jesus, he had how many followers? John was at the cross and his mother and a few friends of the family. That's it. So on the cross, you could well imagine him saying, I have apparently labored to no purpose. I have apparently spent my strength in vain and for nothing. The same one about whom it was said in verse 7. This is what the Lord says. Look at Isaiah 49, 7. The Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. Do you see that? Despised and abhorred by the nation. What nation? The Jews. They despised him. They rejected him. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down. Again, Isaiah 53.3 says the same thing. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. So on the cross, I picture it this way. He cries out in, in, apparent, in anguish at the apparent failure of his mission a nation that hated him, that despised him and rejected him. I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. But it doesn't end there, does it? You have to keep reading. Yet, what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. You see that? 
1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled their insults insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What does that mean? He entrusted himself and his ministry. He effectively said, Father, into your hands I commit my ministry. Do something with this. Do something with this. I am the kernel of wheat that's falling into the ground and dying. Bring forth fruit from this. Father, into your hands I commit this. Do something with it. Now, how can we measure the zeal of the Father to do something with that? Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. That's God the Father saying that to his son. You sit at my right hand and watch what I will do now. I will make your kingdom go to the ends of the earth. Back to Isaiah 49, 6. It's too small a thing for you just to save the Jews. That's too small. I'm going to make you the light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And he's been doing that for 20 centuries through the third person of the Trinity. Through the third person of the Trinity, he's guaranteeing that the elect come to faith in Christ in every generation. But there is midway on the cross while he's dying an apparent failure of the whole thing. So even Jesus had to overcome human feelings, human feelings, such as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a very human feeling. That's not him as the second person, the Trinity, saying that. It's him as the Son of Man, as a human, out of his humanity saying, I am forsaken by God. And so also, I think Isaiah 49, 4, I feel as if my ministry has accomplished nothing. Yet I know that God will do something with this. So, summary. There is a long track record of the greatest servants of the word fighting off massive discouragement in ministry. Now, why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons. One is the apparent failure of the ministry of the word. The kingdom of God generally looks on the outward appearance unimpressive. Unimpressive. Most churches are small. Most times, Christians are vastly outnumbered. I visited a a house church in Shanghai. I had spent that day touring a one-one-hundredth part of the Shanghai's Shanghai's, uh, railway system. It's a city of uh, like 20, 20 million people, 25 million people, this massive rail system. And I'm in this, this apartment complex on the, on the, 13th floor with about 12 Chinese Christians and we're looking out you can see as far as the eye could see when the smog permitted it you could see as far as the eye could see Shanghai everywhere how many of them are Christians very few very few so the outward appearance of the kingdom of God is unimpressive doesn't look like much is happening also with that and, and also just understand theologically, scripturally. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So how would you translate that to statistics? Many 
only a few. Was that 90-10? Is it that high? 93-7%? I don't know. But doesn't that equate with what we actually see in the world? How many, what percentage of America would you say genuinely born again? What percentage of Europe genuinely born again? What percentage of England do you think genuinely born again? What percentage of India? Japan, the numbers are below 1%. For a while, the Japanese were the largest unreached people group in the world. Gospel had been there for 500 years. So, apparent failure of the kingdom. And beyond that is the apparent failure in the lives of individual Christians of Christianity. What do I mean? All right, I'll quote Romans 7. I do not understand why I do what I do. The very thing I hate, I do. But the thing I want to do, I do not do. Now, you may think that's Paul speaking as an unconverted person. That's bad exegesis. Because he said, as it is, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. In other words, a decisive change has been made between me and sin. But I still do the very thing I hate. That explains so much of our experience. We struggle with sin, don't we? And the people of your church struggle with sin. And they struggle sometimes very badly. And it makes, it, it makes pastoral ministry discouraging. And God is committed to work through broken-hearted, humbled sinners. And we are so proud, God must break us to use us. And that's hard. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So that's you guys, that's me. We are weak. We're broken and we have thorns in the flesh and messengers of Satan buffet us and we've got a hard time. No wonder ministry can be so discouraging. And then there's unrealized ambitions. You went into ministry with dreams, right? Thoughts of how it was going to be. Paul had the ambition to preach the gospel where, where Christ was not named, so it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. Other people have similar godly ambitions. They want to take the gospel to... I don't know, south side of Chicago or to, to, to Brazil or, or to some place, southern part of Brazil we were talking earlier. And you have, ambri- you have ambitions, dreams, and they're given you, I think, by the Lord. The Holy Spirit leads you and all that. But then you get in there and you work and it isn't what you thought it was going to be. And it's discouraging. Um, our work causes us to muck around constantly in other people's sin natures. Have you noticed? It's like, you know, someone sets up a counseling time. I'm like, I don't want to meet with you. <laughs> I don't want to hear about your stuff. I got my own stuff, but I'm a pastor. I don't ever say that. Sure, when would you like to meet? You know? <laughs> Man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That's Jesus. Also, our role of leadership makes us a special target. Like, there's a big bullseye on our back for Satan and demons. They come after us with unique attacks. And then there's our own personal weaknesses. We have our own physical frailties and emotional frailties. We have our own ego frailties. And there's certain things that come that make life sad and hard for us. We are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. This is just from our weakness. And then there is nothing more discouraging to me in my Christian life. Nothing. 
than my own sin? Nothing. It is the most depressing topic of my life that after all of this time, I still speak like that to my wife or I, spill, or I still cut short my prayer time or I still lust in some ways that are shameful. My thought life is not what I want it to be. And that is very discouraging. And then there's just bad habits physically, not getting enough sleep, not eating well, gaining weight, you know, not exercising, different things like that. And there's specific aspects of ministry that are hard for pastors in revitalization situations that I've listed here, but I don't have time to go through. But they're in my book as well. I mean, things that make it hard to shepherd those particular churches that are close to extinction. Um, they're contentious, they're angry, they're selfish, they're, they're not doing any of the significant things they should be doing, they're not reaching out with the gospel, good things aren't happening. It can be very discouraging to shepherd those kinds of churches. And all of those make things very, very difficult. So, what do we do? Well, I would say you need to fight. So, the remaining couple of minutes, I just want to take you briefly through Ephesians 6, spiritual warfare, and then we'll be done. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, think about that. Do you realize how important that is in pastoral ministry? She, he, they are not your real problem. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms are. Those people are, at best, we're hoping, Christ's sheep that you're there to shepherd and rescue and help. That's what we're hoping for. So put on the full armor of God and take your stand. What does that mean? At least in ministry, it means don't run away. Stand your ground. Stand and suffer. Stand and preach week after week. Stand in counsel, even if it's hard to hear the sins that people are going through. Stand in your ministry. Don't give up. Persevere through it. I've been at FBC now 24, almost 24 years. There is no other church I'd rather pastor. It did not always feel that way. I remember hearing a sermon that John Piper was preaching, and he had just come back from vacation, and he expressed in the sermon how much he missed being at Bethlehem Baptist while he was gone. And I literally wept. I loved vacation because I got to get away from First Baptist Church. (laughs) Now I understand how he feels. I would say the hardest thing about me coming here this week was to not be at FBC yesterday. Um, But I was glad, I was delighted to do. I love being here. It wasn't that, it it was just that I love being there. And so stand firm and then put on the full armor of God And what is it? I I think what it is is each element represents aspects of gospel truth for you personally. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? It's not, you should be a righteous person. That's not it. Do you think Satan's arrows can't penetrate your own righteousness? He's been doing that for millennia. Imagine some soldier deployed in the field and he won't take the body armor provided by the U.S. Army and said, no, I've got something I worked up in my garage. I'm going to wear that. It's like, look, you're a fool. You're a fool. Christ has worked a perfect imputed righteousness for us. 
that cannot be penetrated by anything Satan throws at you. Put it on. Put that breastplate of righteousness on. And put that belt of truth on. The things you say from the word of God are true. They are true and right. It holds everything together, the word of God. And and put on the helmet of salvation, which Thessalonians calls the helmet of hope of salvation. What's hope? Hope is a feeling that the future is bright based on the promise of God. Put on hope of heaven. Put on the fact that you are going to a perfect, beautiful world in which you will be in a resurrection body that, that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. You'll be radiant and beautiful. You'll shine like the sun. That's where you're going. Nothing can stop that. Put on that hope. Because if you don't have that hope, who's going to ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have? Because you don't seem to have any hope. But if you are filled with hope, that's the remedy to despair because it's the exact opposite of despair. So put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. And take up the shield of faith. So hold up those flaming, uh, you know, flaming arrows are coming at you. There are always two categories, I would say. Temptations and accusations. That's what's coming at us from Satan. And the shield of faith can extinguish all of them. And take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Memorize the Word of God. Preach the Word of God. Counsel out of the Word of God. And Satan cannot stop us. All right. There's more I could say, but I'm going to close now. And in my closing prayer, I'm going to pray for all of the churches that are represented here, that God would work health and holiness in them and that he would bless each of you in your ministry. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time we've had together to consider the noble task of pastoring. I thank you for Eric and for Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church and for the the team here that has treated us so kindly and lovingly. And I thank you for the word of God. And I pray that you would be with each of these pastors and church members that are here representing various churches pray that you'd fill them with hope that the word of god cannot be cannot be broken it cannot be cannot fail and that the churches can be healthy and strong and shine with the light of the gospel i pray that that is what would happen and that those that are laboring faithfully in those settings would not grow weary or be discouraged but know that their labor in the lord is not in vain And now to him who is able to establish us by the proclamation of the gospel for the glory of God and for the health of his church and for the salvation of all of the elect. To God who alone can strengthen us be glory and honor and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen.